This is Acts chapter 28, and this is verse 30 and 31. Some of you may have noticed that there's no verse 29 in your Bible. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. The reason for that is that some translations were written before we found or dug up fragments of the Scriptures and found that uh, the earlier ones and the better ones didn't include a verse 29, which may have been something as simple as someone writing a note uh, because they found it in another copy, and then that copy got copied, but not as a footnote, but as the text of Scripture. Either way, it wasn't much. It was just a little detail. The conclusion, though, is as follows in verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And with that, let's once again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the portion of this service where our Bibles are open. We ask that you open our ears, open our eyes, open our heart. Would you teach us something from these few words and at the end of a book and a lot of work and a lot of listening and a lot of ourselves changing under the strength and power of your living word. But Lord, we ask you to do it again today. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen. Well, those were the two last verses. And uh, because sometimes I find it interesting to, to look things up, and I know that some of you too, too, even though others of you would uh, consider this the work of nerds, there are 1,006 verses in the book of Acts. We read the last two. So this is the end, and maybe it ended the way you expected it to end, but I would say probably not. It just seems rather simplistic. We've read through adventure and trial We've read through violence. We've, we've been through a shipwreck with Paul. And Luke's going to end it just with two words. Hey, he lived in this place. He paid his own rent. Anybody that came, he welcomed. And he did the same two things he did anywhere else. He proclaimed the kingdom and he explained who Jesus was. But I think it's the perfect ending. But it, it'll, it'll take a little bit of explaining. Uh, for our sermons here at Wake Chapel, if you're visiting with us, We study the Bible verse by verse. We've studied all 1,006 of these verses. We started back in September the 5th of 2021. Today's sermon is the 61st in that series. Just for point of reference, uh, John's gospel took 79 sermons and almost two years. I think a little over the two years. And the reason why we go to the trouble to invest ourselves in the scriptures this way is Two reasons, I'm sure there are many more, but one, we get to hear the author speak for himself. That's Luke, of course, but it's inspired God speaking through him. The agenda is set by the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration and what was written by Luke. Also, it keeps your pastor honest. He doesn't get to sit around and figure out, okay, what would be an interesting topic, and then where in the Bible would I go to support my topic? (laughs) It's the scriptures, so it's God's topic, and we have to stay in his lane. We can talk about this or that as it relates to it, but 
The main point of the messages need to be the main point of the story itself. Or really what we're doing is an opinion piece and we bring the Bible in to support it. It's the other way around. The Bible is the show and perhaps we're on the right side of it in believing it to be the word of very God. So the main point of this book is we've studied it. We've gone over it a hundred times at least. The word of God keeps going out. That's how the book began. God sent his disciples into the world after his son ascended back into heaven. And as that gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ went out, then he brought people into the church as they believed, were baptized, were saved, and uh, church and its existence is the history that follows. So if we were to look at verse 8 of chapter 1, you might even have it memorized. That's where we heard from Jesus. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the scope of the book. We're going to watch that good news, what Jesus did and what he taught them. And they're going to carry it from where they are in Jerusalem to next door, which is Judea, to a little further, which would be out in the county, I suppose, uh, with Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. And in this case, for this book, that would be Rome. And if there were a place in that world at that time uh, from which to distribute the gospel, Rome would be the hub of the world to do it and considered the uttermost parts of the world. So we just read that that's what Paul is doing For two years, under house arrest, he keeps preaching, he keeps teaching, the word keeps going out, and people keep coming in as they're saved. So what we've got, our text for today, before we uh, ask our member candidates to uh, spread out across the platform here, and we, with a confirmation vote, bring them into the family, we've got two verses that cover two years to study, ask ourselves, What do we understand here, and then how do we obey? Um, You would think, oh, my goodness, two years' worth of things to cover. Well, there's there's not a lot there. It's just two verses that cover two years. Uh, The only thing we know about what took place in Paul's life during these two years, two whole years, as Luke tells us, are what we see in these two verses, unless, of course, you would include what we can gather from what Paul wrote during these two years while he's under house arrest. And that would be at least Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And given enough time, we'll study those verse by verse in this room. Should the Lord decide to bless us in order to do such. And if it's not me, hope it'll be some other guy who'll teach you verse by verse what we're supposed to know. Now, the conditions of his custody in Rome in this house that he rented uh, apparently did not permit him to go anywhere. Uh, that he wanted, though he could be called up at any time. But anyone who wanted could come visit him, as the leaders of the Jewish community did. And we've read about that last week. Uh, Luke tells us he kept an open house, and he welcomed welcomed all who came to him. Uh, He could again be called up at any notice. Uh, He was to appear before the emperor. I have no idea if he would be alerted ahead of time. I I doubt that Rome had a texting system to give him alerts like Amazon does when our packages come. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) But at any rate, 
he's doing what Paul does. He's writing. He's got a guard chained to him, which is a captive audience. I want to get to heaven just to meet some of these Roman soldiers. There's no way they spend two years with Paul and not become believers, I wouldn't think. But there's two things we're told that he did with those who came and he welcomed. Proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. We discussed this in detail last week. The proclaiming the kingdom of God is perhaps where he would start with someone who's not a Jew. And he would describe how through the record of history God broke through to humanity and introduced himself basically, revealed himself from heaven to those of us on earth through his word, started in Genesis with the man and the woman. He talked with them in the cool of the evening. And then we would see him saving the world through a man and his family in an ark. And then in the process of time, he would work with this fellow in Ur named Abram. And he would bring him into a place that he didn't know he was going. And then through his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph and the other brothers, 12 tribes of Israel, he would work as their God, they his people, separate from the rest of the nations in order to preserve for him a, a, a line or race of people to introduce in the process of time, their Messiah, the Savior of the world. He would start further back, I suppose, with those that were uninitiated and proclaim to them the kingdom of God. But with the Jews, he would start out by explaining that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, Joseph and Mary's son, was the promised Messiah. The historical Jesus is the biblical Messiah. All of those prophecies that said that the man is coming, Jesus fulfills and fills, fulfills impeccably. In fact, it couldn't be anybody else. You shouldn't miss him. But they didn't believe such. They were the ones that worked with the Romans in order to have him killed. They were the ones trying to kill Paul for continuing to preach the same message. But that's what Paul does. No matter where he is or what he's doing, he's explaining or proclaiming, actually, the kingdom of God and explaining that the Jesus is the Christ. Now, there's, there's ways he went about this, and some of these ways are what makes Christianity dependable as it is. Prophecy was a big point of it. Prophecy is, uh, as some have described it, pre-written history. God would speak through a prophet and tell those who would listen that at a specific time, in a specific way, certain specific things are going to happen. And they're going to happen way down the road. And it might have been that some of the things applied to the people right there in that day, but they also applied later down the road. And the reason why you would do this is so that when those things came true, you could trust the testimony of the prophets who were speaking the words of God. I mean, just think about it. If there was someone who could predict the future and they could do that accurately, would you think that's special? I mean, you've, you've watched movies before where people could go back in the future and pick up, what, a baseball book and then go back and bet on those baseball games? Y'all did watch movies in the 80s, didn't you? That'd be a lot of power, right? If you could predict the future. Well, he wasn't predicting the future. He had a time machine. None of us have a time machine. To be able to predict history 
is an amazing thing. And then to predict that history such that no one could just happen to be born in that town and then say, well, these other things fit. I'm him. No, it's imposter proof because it included miracles. And it even included a resurrection, which is not natural. That would be supernatural. So what we've got is eyewitness accounts coupled with prophetic history of events that took place in real time, carried along by people who faithfully witnessed them and wrote them down, so we have a trail to hang our faith on. It's totally different, as we talked a few weeks ago, about other religions that might be based on the subjective uh, experience of a dreamer or a a guru. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle these things, but just someone who says... This is what happened to me. I've wrapped a religion around it. Trust me, and you can have what I have. Well, at the end of the day, you've got to trust one person's account. And existential, you know, out-of-body experiences where the whole world comes together and everything makes sense, that's, that's not that unheard of. There are chemical substances you could put in your bloodstream Eat enough of the right mushrooms, you can do that too. Now, if anybody repeats that, let me be quick to say, I've never done that and don't advise that you do. Okay? I'm just making a reference that people can dream things. People can have experiences. But people can't go from dead to alive. 500 people see it, and we're talking about it 2,000 years later. And the guy who did it was foretold by prophets millennia prior. And it all lines up just right. This is different. This is what these men were willing to die for because they knew it was true. No one dies for a lie that's made up. So this is what Paul is doing. He's showing how this historical Jesus is the biblical Messiah. If you don't have historical testimony of eyewitness accounts, men that followed Jesus around for three years, saw him die on a Roman cross, but then walking around and speaking with them later, the very best you could say about the Bible is that it's the beautiful, most beautiful story the world has ever heard. But sadly, it's just too good to be true. It's a fairy tale because it can't be substantiated. But that's not the case. The resurrection is proof that doesn't happen Not naturally, it doesn't. If it did, we'd call it supernatural. If it did, we'd notice it. We'd pay attention. It'd change our lives as it did these disciples. So if you consider that as the message of the book of Acts, and Luke saying at the beginning, Jesus told them, you're my witnesses. Go tell it. If that's what happens, then at the end, when we get to the very last word and we read the word unhindered, even though Greek to English sometimes doesn't quite line up one-to-one, you, you, you might want to look at the word unhindered and say, okay, that's the last word, that's the big word, that's the grand finale. This man's under house arrest. I'd, I'd call that hindered. You ever use that term, providentially hindered? That's what, that's churchy language that churchy people say, where unchurched people say, What? providentially hindered. What are you talking about? Well, that would mean in God's sovereignty something comes up and we can't do what we'd plan to do. Having a guard chained to my wrist, I'd call that 
cramping of style at least. But what is he doing? He's still telling the story and people are still coming and they're still believing it. It's not hindered at all. It, sometimes it feels like we're, we're translating the fire and the lightning out of, out of some of these things. But try to imagine in your head a man under house arrest whose, whose hands are, are literally tied, but his mouth is open. And no one in Rome is saying anything about what he can and can't say. And there is some speculation based on the way the Greek reads that previous verse that said, at his own expense. There is a case to say that it was somewhat at Rome's expense. Nero could actually be paying to keep up this man whose mouth is wide open, even though his hands are tied. We, we might want to retranslate it, uh, speaking with all boldness and unbroken in his spirit, or with all boldness and undefeated as far as his record, or with all boldness without one shred of compromise. He's still doing what he's always done. It was the message of salvation through Jesus that was not hindered. Though Paul's hands are tied, the message is not bound. That means there was no concealment of truth, no obscurity of expression, no fear of consequences. In fact, uh, he believed he was going to be released, and we believe he was. And if you look through the story itself, nothing in the story of Acts, and here's just a rundown of the stuff that happened as far as Paul's part of the story that began in chapter 9, be it prison or sickness, or life-threatening disasters, vicious enemies, unfavorable governments, self-absorbed and arrogant rulers, beatings, threats, disagreements among believers, horrible theology, magic, mobs, lies, misunderstandings, ignorance, or stubborn unbelief, none of that is able to stop or even slow down the process of the Word going out and God bringing people in. It's been consistent from the front to the back. Now, one of the lingering questions when you get to the end here is, uh, well, what happened to him? Because uh, I would expect Luke to give us the itinerary. Well, he got out on this date and uh, went and got a new suit and then went to a synagogue somewhere on his way to Spain, started a riot, got beat up, went back to jail, got out of jail, another town on the way to Spain, Started a riot with his preaching, got beat up, but not as bad as the other beat up. And then didn't stay in jail as long as the pre You know, it's the same thing. It just repeats, but there's no itinerary. It just says he was unhindered. Um, as far as what we can read extra biblically, we're not given a lot of help. Uh, though we can glean through uh, his writings while he's in prison here, and they seem to supply evidence that he resumed his travels for about two more years, doing the same thing he'd done everywhere else he'd ever been. But after these two years, tradition tells us Emperor Nero would have him arrested again. Some things had changed. Nero had changed. And would have him executed by beheading. That's what the... The tradition tells us. Nero would die too. And then Rome would eventually die. It would fall. And in 2023, we're still talking about the good news of Jesus. 
unhindered in this country. There are places where they are hindered. But are they really hindered? What can they do to them? Put them in jail? Kill them? God's going to raise them up anyway. That's what we've been singing about. That's Paul's testimony. The resurrection is the very thing that the Jews reject. So the message of Jesus, what we've been seeing, and as far as resurrection goes and the story of the Bible itself, it's the message of Jesus that he can take you back to the garden. That's where the story started in Genesis 1-1. You've heard me say that's your price of admission. If you believe those ten words, the rest of the Bible won't be a problem. If you don't buy those ten words, the rest of the Bible is going to be a big problem. Because if God... In the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, and he can do what he wants to. He's God. We're creatures. He's supernatural's his thing. He put natural laws on this universe, and we're stuck under those. That will change later, too, when we get glorified bodies. And by the time you get to John 3.16, you haven't got to the end of the Bible, but you have gotten to the end of the plot because you know by then that he's going to send his son... To do for the world what they can't do for themselves. And they're on this crash course to perish. What did they do? In Genesis, everything seemed great. Well, they sinned against God. They took that bite of forbidden fruit. You know the story. And that's where death came into the picture. And death was only a punishment for the sin, right? And long story short... When Jesus comes, he does what no man ever did. He lives a righteous life. Everyone else lives an unrighteous life. And then he's killed by the hands of the people he came to forgive. And in heaven, from heaven's perspective, the transaction works something like this. All the sins of the world are going to be loaded on the shoulders of this sinless son of God. And there, as he hangs on a cross, and at a certain point, the lights go out. He's paying for your sins and mine. We know this because he says something that you would think God couldn't say to himself. My God, why have you forsaken me? What's loaded in those words we'll only know when we get to heaven and can have it explained to us. But when he says it is finished, those sins are paid for and his life ends. And it's the height of of cosmic injustice because he'd never sinned. He doesn't deserve death. It makes sense to us three days later when he raises from the dead because death can't hold him. It has no claim on him. It wouldn't be fair. He's alive. But what that provided for us was a transactional opportunity. You repent of your sins. They've been paid for by Christ. And I'll give you his righteousness which you don't deserve, you don't have, you couldn't do if your life depended on it. And I'll take you back to that garden I ran Adam and Eve out of. I pronounce that good, but then they sinned. And as a result of the sin, you've got this alienation that takes place. A holy God can't look on sin, so the relationship's broken. And he has to run them out. And he curses them with the curse of sin that will wind up with death. And it's a double alienation, too, because the man that's estranged from God, the man and the woman, they can't patch things up or uncurse themselves. 
by, you know, like working a probation or something like that. So it's a dreadful impasse. God can't do anything with sin, and man can't save himself. And he's scared of the God who says he's going to kill them because of the sin that he said before they ever sinned in the first place. So it's going to take a mediator, a go-between, a third party. And there's where Jesus comes in. And where he's perfect, he deserves heaven and access with his Father. But because he's human, he could actually stand in for us and take our sins. And because he's sinless, he can actually survive the death in order to let us survive it too. Curses lifted, broken, paid for, however you want to do it. And folks, this is what... It's easy to get mixed up in... Not mixed up, but distracted with all the adventure in this narrative story. But this story in the book of Acts and our story at Wake Chapel is the story of Jesus taking us back to the garden. That's the story we have the world doesn't have. That's the story if we don't tell, no one will. And the result of this story, I find no better place in Scripture, though it's found in many places. But but this is what it sounds like when, when, when that gospel is applied to our lives. This is Titus 3. We're going we're gonna to look at this in the weeks to come. For we ourselves were once foolish. This is before Jesus. Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And if you've got even a modicum of self-awareness, you know that's true. That's where we live. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, that would be Jesus, He saved us. He did. We didn't save ourselves, and not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know, hey, you, you do this, I'll, I'll do this for you. But according to his own mercy. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Y'all know how this works if you've got kids. Hey, if y'all don't knock it off, lightning's going to strike. That's the way my dad used to put it. And let's just say that you don't knock it off and something gets turned over. A lamp is broken or food's on the floor. But let's just suppose that the threat isn't followed through. We deserve to be punished. We've been warned of our actions. The actions have resulted in the very thing that was said would happen if we kept on. But we don't get what we deserve. That's called mercy. Right? Keep going. By the washing of regeneration, typified by baptism, right? And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's what happens in our heart, whom He, that's Jesus, poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus. So you got the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus all working together, so that being justified, just as if I'd never sinned, by His grace. Now that's different than mercy. Grace would be after the lamp's broken or food's on the floor or whatever it is, and you didn't get a spanking, you go out for ice cream. That's grace. You got something you didn't deserve, and you didn't get something you did deserve. 
And look what else. It's not ice cream. We might become heirs. That's family according to the hope of eternal life. We belong to him. He belongs to us. Just like he had in mind in the Garden of Eden. Minus the experiment. I don't know if you ever want to look at it like that. But how in the world do we praise Jesus the same way angels would? The truth is we can't. We do it better. Because an angel doesn't know what it is to be forgiven. We do. We were his. And then we walked out. And then he brought us back. That's the message we preach. That's what we do. This service here is a great snapshot of the priorities at Wake Chapel. To tell the story, a clear articulation of the grace of Jesus that saves sinners and takes them back to the garden. That's been said through these confessions. We've sung it through our songs. We've rehearsed it again at the end of a book that was a thousand and six verses worth of saying, this message is worth dying for because it's the only message of life. That's how you live eternally. And so far, we've told this story unhindered. So I say our prayer is that we continue to tell this story with all boldness.